last number of weeks as well. Can we give another round of applause to our youth and all that they've done? So great. Welcome to The Vine. If you're relatively new to The Vine, my name's Andrew. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and it's just so great. Oh, sorry. Um, it's just so great to, uh, to be with you. Oh, uh, sorry. Um, sorry. Um, yeah, thanks. Um, thank you. Yeah, just, um, that's fine. Thank you. Things don't always work out how we plan them in life, do they? I think if we're honest with ourselves, actually, so much of our lives is a little bit of a mess. And no matter how perfect we might try to make stuff appear, the reality is we can often struggle, can't we, with keeping things perfect in our lives. That so often if we're honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that we're pretty messy. And at times we can be pretty messed up. And I think uh, us humans have become really good at actually projecting a version of ourselves into the world that looks perfect to everybody around us, to kind of mask or hide the reality that there's still some messiness and some messed upness in us. Or maybe I'm the only one who does that. Anyone else here maybe do that? You don't have to put your hand up. Okay, put your hand up if you do that. Yes, I want to see those hands boldly proclaiming that we can do this, can't we, in life? That, that we know that there's some stuff in us that we're not proud of, that, that we don't love. And, and so we project into the world something because what we ultimately want to do is kind of distract people from seeing the true person that we are. Magicians call this misdirection. In fact, if I am... Um, let me, uh, let me just show you this. Um, if I was, uh, for example, going to make this coin disappear... What I would do is I would show you this coin and I would tell you that this is a Hong Kong $5 coin, that it's a real coin. And then I would put it on my, my thing like this and I would do this, uh, pretending that I'm going to make it disappear. But then I'd accidentally drop it on the table and then I would put it back in my hand and I would start doing this again. And then suddenly it would disappear. Wow. You're welcome. I'm here all week. What you may not realize, though, is that the coin is actually up here. There. Misdirection. Distracting people over here so they don't realize what's truly going on over here. Are you with me? Here's why I share all that with you. I think in the world's modern day celebration of Christmas, we have one of the most subversive misdirections that there has ever been created. I don't know if you've realized this, but the world has secularized Christmas over the last number of years. That what we have in the world is, hey, look at this thing over here that we now define and call Christmas, and it has nothing actually to do often with the reality of the true, original Christmas. Are you with me? It's kind of like this sort of thing of like, hey, let's even try and get all of Jesus out of Christmas. Have you, have you seen Xmas written around the place? Let's just get rid of Christ from Christmas because that story is just a little bit uncomfortable and not everybody believes in Jesus. So we can't talk about Jesus at Christmas even though the holiday is actually about Jesus. And so we'll call it season's greetings. Happy holidays. 
and we'll try to make it look as benign and as nice and really all of this about family and celebration and we'll try to project this image of what Christmas should be to distract the world from the reality of what Christmas truly is about somebody who was born into this life to give people great hope who on the cross died, gave up his life so that we may have grace and forgiveness and we could know the fullness of life. But we don't want anyone to know that story. So happy holidays to you all. Are you with me? Now, even when Jesus is included in the Christmas story, in the modern day celebration of it, it's normally a saccharine version of Jesus. It's normally the perfect Jesus that you've ever seen, or maybe the Hallmark card that you buy for someone to give to them on Christmas Day presents the nativity scene in the most perfect and beautiful way you've ever noticed. Let me give you an example of it. Uh, I found this one online this week. Ah, it's not just the perfect nativity scene. You got the beautiful star in the background. It looks like a wonderful oasis that you might want to go to holiday for. Look at that sheep, the perfect sheep ever. The sheep just staring gazily into Jesus' eyes. There's Jesus lying down in a halo of sunbeams, even though he's just been born. Are you with me, people? So we turn the Christmas story into this kind of perception that we're comfortable with, that we think you know, makes us feel good, when the reality is that's as far away from the reality of that first Christmas as possible. And then we do this in movies, and we do this in stuff like whatever Christmas movie you're going to watch over the Christmas period, other than Die Hard, it presents a version of the Christmas family a lot like this one, right? Like the perfect Christmas family. There they are. They can't get wider than that. They're surrounding by the tree behind them. There's beautiful lights everywhere. I mean, it is a beautiful scene. This is Christmas. And that makes us all, here's the ironic thing, that makes us all want to have the perfect Christmas ourselves, don't we? Like we want Christmas to be perfect. We want it to look just like that. And so we decorate our homes and we call our friends over and we cook the food and we make it perfect and we want it to arrive on time. And if it doesn't, we get really angry and upset and it's super stressful to make everything super perfect. But we think we need a perfect Christmas because the world is telling us that Christmas has to be perfect. (laughs) The funny thing is, we even as Christians spiritualize the perfectness of Christmas. Oh, if I could just pull off the perfect Christmas for my family this year, Jesus will be glorified. Like if the, if the food is perfect, the turkey's nice and moist, if all the presents are brought and put under the tree at the right time, if my kids are happy with what I brought them, Jesus will be glorified in our midst. I wonder in our desire to try to create the perfect Christmas, that we're actually in danger of missing out on what Christmas truly is. Or to put it another way, is our striving for the perfect Christmas simply Christmas misdirection? Think about it for a moment. Because the first Christmas was an absolute mess. Nothing went right with that first Christmas. I mean, if you want a perfect Christmas, do not open the pages of the Gospels. I mean, just stop for a moment and think about what you see in that first Christmas. Number one, a crisis teenage pregnancy. Awkward. Number two, an unexplained and unexpected road trip at the last minute. An arrival and the accommodation is messed up. A not very ideal birthing environment for a child. And then, to top it off, Three weird old astrologers from the east come over and visit you. 
And then, just to add more to that, there's a genocide that happens in the very place where the child is born. That's a messed up Christmas. That should make you feel better about some of your messed up Christmases over the years. But that's the reality of the first Christmas. It's so messed up and so chaotic and the the people involved in it are so confused about what's happening that they have no idea that they're getting swept up in this redemptive moment of history. The first Christmas is so messed up and it's just as God wanted it. It was quite literally Christmas. See what I did there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This Advent, we want to take you into the messiness of Christmas. Because it's actually in the messiness where the message of Christmas sits. And if you try to do some misdirection, try to ignore the reality that the first Christmas was a little bit messy, you actually kind of miss what the hope of the first Christmas is all about for you and for me. I mean, think about the incarnation for a start. God decides to send his perfect representation of himself, the perfect manifestation of himself in the incarnation of Jesus, fully God and fully human, born into that smelly, horrible, not like the Christmas card, that smelly, horrible, dark, damp cave that he was born into. And he was there in the messiness to tell us something, that no matter how messy the world is, no matter how broken and chaotic this place can be. And you could probably think that the world today is just as messed up and chaotic and broken as it ever was, that Jesus is happy to be born in that place. That he's happy to be born in a place that isn't all right. That he's not interested in some misdirection. That he actually wants to meet you yourself in your personal brokenness, in your messiness. That the beauty of the incarnation is that Jesus did not come for a perfect world filled with perfect people. If that was the case, he wouldn't have come at all. He's come to an imperfect world filled with imperfect people because in meeting the imperfect people, he might bring us into the righteousness, not the perfection, the righteousness of Christ. So that we might know a saving relationship with him. And when he comes again, Advent, When he comes again at the end of all things, we are presented to him holy and pure, presented to him without blemish as a bride before him because of the work he's done inside of us. That's why Christmas is messy. Because it says something to us about our messiness. And so over Advent, we're going to unpack the messy moments of Christmas together. Next week, we're going to look at that really messy time with Zechariah and the angel in the temple and his silence, and then the messiness of Mary having her pregnancy and everybody thinking that she had sex before marriage. The week after that, we're going to look at the, the family, Mary and Joseph, arriving in Bethlehem, and nobody in their family welcoming them in. Not because, as the carols sometimes tell us, that the whole place was filled but because nobody in their family wanted anything to do with a pregnant, unmarried teenager. And then the week after that, we're going to look at Jesus when he's just eight days old in the temple, and the prophets turn up and speak to him and say some pretty messy stuff to Mary and to Jesus, stuff that would come to define the things that would happen in their lives in the years ahead. And in this, our hope for you and for us is that we would strip the misdirection of Christmas from us so that we would see Christmas 
as it was truly meant to be seen. It might surprise you, but the gospel writers were intent in stripping the misdirection out of the story of the life of Jesus. In fact, uh, Matthew and Luke, who are the ones that tell us the birth story of Jesus, they do everything in that birth story to try to communicate to you that this was not a perfect time, that this was not just as everybody else thought it should be, although it was exactly as God had planned it to be. And I think no more powerfully do they show us this than in what both of them do in presenting to us the genealogy of Jesus. Genealogy is just a fancy word to talk about the bloodline, the family before him that came to make who Jesus is and was. Now, that genealogy is presented to us in both Matthew and in Luke. Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 3. I'm not going to read you in detail those genealogies today. You can do that during the week. I encourage you to do that. What I want to do today is tell you the stories about the people who are in the genealogies. Because I think in understanding their story, you might understand Jesus' story better, and therefore you might understand your story better. You see some incredible people in the genealogies in Matthew and Luke. You see people like Abraham, the father of the faith, the, the one who began Israel itself, the one who was faithful to God and did so many things as an act of love and grace to him. You see characters like Isaac, Isaac who was incredibly obedient. In fact, one of the best examples we have in Scripture of somebody who's obedient to God's call on their life. We see the prophets, like um, there's Hezekiah and Amos in the genealogies. Great prophets who held God's word and had the courage and the boldness to speak that word into the world, and it was a beautiful thing. We see great moral leaders in those genealogies. People like Boaz and Jesse, uh, people like Elam, who, ones who walked out this idea of what it meant to live for God, the kingdom of God in the world today. And of course, you, you see kings, you see kings in the genealogy, David, his son Solomon, Rehoboam, all kings that led Israel at different periods of time. And when you see the genealogy like that, you can begin to understand why Matthew and Luke include such amazing figures in their genealogy. See, genealogies in the first century were designed to tell you something about the individual. If you wanted to say to someone, hey, this individual is worth your time, you would tell them the family that they've come from. We don't do this in Hong Kong society at all, do we? Oh, okay, sorry, too close. All right, so, um, but you know what I'm saying? Like, who you've come from, the people who've gone before you say something about who you are. And so when Matthew and Luke are trying to present Jesus as the Messiah, they're trying to fill the genealogy with people that speak of the glory and the goodness of this person. Matthew, who's writing predominantly to a Jewish audience, starts from the place of Abraham, which makes sense because he's trying to convince Jewish people that Jesus is their long-awaited for Messiah. Luke, though, Luke's writing to a Gentile audience, mostly a Gentile audience. So he doesn't start with Abraham. He goes all the way back to Adam. Why does he go back to Adam? Because Adam's the father of all people, regardless of background or race or culture. And so Luke takes us all the way back there to say, this Jesus is for everybody. And in their presentations, they're basically saying, here's Abraham. Here's the kings. Here's the miracle workers. Here's the prophets. Here's all these people that make Jesus. And we do the same, don't we? When we tell people stories about our families, we tell them the good stuff, right? We, we tell them, I, I've already received a number of Christmas cards uh, so far this year. I love getting Christmas cards. Christmas cards tell you all the great stuff that's happening with families. Here's all the things that have happened. And we do this, don't we? we? We talk to people like this, like, hey, let me tell you about little Bobby and what he got in his latest test. 
If little Bobby didn't do good in the latest test, you don't talk about that, right? <laughs> or whatever it might be, whatever achievement and stuff. We don't talk about the messy stuff, do we? We don't present the failures or anything like that. Like, like we don't tell people, oh, let me tell you about Uncle Bob who's in jail, you know? <laughs> let me tell you about, you know, Ted who cheated on his wife. He's part of my family. Oh, a little awkward, but let's talk about that one, you know? You come over to my house and you'll see photos of my house. Those photos are from good times that my family has. I don't splash the photos of the arguments and the breakdowns and the discussions and the things that Chris and I disagree on. I don't present that sort of stuff to the world. We love to present to the world who we think the world should think us to be. And you would think that Matthew and Luke, in presenting Jesus as the Messiah, would do exactly the same thing. Here's the thing. While they do include a few people, like I've already mentioned, who are amazing people, the majority of the genealogy, guess what? The people are really messed up. That should shock you. That's what Matthew and Luke should not have done. But they don't shy away from the messy background to Jesus. In fact, they actually want you to see it. They shine a light on it so that you can begin to wrestle with the, with the incredible reality that some really screwed up people went into the bloodline that formed and brought Jesus Christ. So I wanna, I wanna tell you some of the, the stories of some of the people that you'll find in Matthew and Luke's presentation of the genealogy of Jesus. You'll find characters like this, like Jacob and Jeconiah, who were basically serial liars and manipulative deceivers. Um, there's people like David and Johan, who were murderers, adulterers, and rapists. You'll find Judah. Judah's an interesting one. Judah is a human trafficker and sexual abuser. You'll find Abijah and Manasseh, both who are idol worshippers, by the way. Down the list a little bit further in Matthews, there is Rahab. She's a brothel owner and a prostitute. Tamar's always a fascinating one for me. Tamar slept with her father-in-law, so basically entered into incest. You've got Solomon, who was essentially a sex addict. He had 300 sex slaves. You have uh, Ahaziah. And this one might be the most disgusting of all. Ahaziah, who actually was involved in child sacrifice. All of these people, Matthew and Luke don't shy away from despite the difficulties of their stories. But it's not just those that have abused that are in the bloodline. There's also examples of those that have been abused in the bloodline. So in here as well, it's Bathsheba. Bathsheba who was exploited by King David for her body. There's Ruth who was a Moabitess. The Jewish people hated the Moabites. She's included in the line. And she was someone who was actually discriminated against time and time again. You then got Mary in the list, of course. Mary comes towards the end. She was someone who was falsely accused. People who accused her of having sex before marriage when that wasn't the case. So you've got those that have also been mistreated in the list. Add to that then a whole bunch of names. Let me read these to you. Uh, people like Azor. There's uh, Zadok, uh, Akchim, Eliud. The reason why I read you these names is because we know nothing about them. There's no story about them at all. They're not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. They're completely forgotten to history. You could actually argue that these are forgotten 
unknown and insignificant people. They're also on the list. So just take a second and look at Jesus' family tree. These are the stories that go to feed into the person of Jesus. And Matthew and Luke are like, look at this. And some of us in this room, we have some pretty broken families that we're from, but maybe this is a comfort to you that your family's not quite like this. This is pretty full on. And Matthew and Luke, what they're doing is they're, they're like, no more misdirection here. We're not going to try and convince you that the Messiah is this perfect God, this perfect person for a perfect world. He's a perfect God and a perfect person for a really broken, screwed up world. And guess what? All that brokenness, all that screwed upness, it's all come up to form who he is. That his bloodline is not great. His bloodline actually is a reflection of us, of humanity. And this, my friends, is what Christmas is all about. Matthew and Luke are trying to shine a spotlight right at the start and say, here's the purest message of Christmas that Jesus is willing to step into the muck and the brokenness and all the stuff that there is in life, all of the stuff that we would rather sweep under the carpet, we'd rather do some misdirection so people don't know that about us. All of that stuff is why Jesus came. This is the gospel at its purest form. He didn't come for you when you got yourself cleaned up. He didn't come for you when you were all so perfect and nice. So many of us think that Jesus would come to us if we just stopped sinning. The reality is he came to you whilst you were still a sinner. He steps into the muckiest of our mucks and says, I am here. I'm here with you. That's the beauty of Christmas. And any time we try to turn it into something else, we're actually stripping Christmas from the gospel for which it was founded in the first place. See, here's what Jesus' genealogy teaches us. That no one is so bad, so sinful, so mistreated, so forgotten, so cast out of the circle of faith that they are outside the story of Jesus. No one. And if that doesn't encourage you today, I don't know what will. That no one is disqualified from the grace and the mercy of a God who is born in a damp, dark cave to give us the message that no matter how damp, dark, and cave-like our hearts might be, Jesus can be born in there too. His life can come alive in us. That in fact, I think actually Jesus likes to search out those that seem more messed up than others and say, you're my child. You. I love you. And I am here for you. And the beauty of the genealogy of Jesus, in fact, the beauty of every genealogy is that it tells you the people that come to form someone. But then you can flip it because that person then becomes the starting point of more that would come from them. Do you follow that? So genealogy goes up towards the person, but then the genealogy goes beyond the person outwards from them. 
And every single person who's in this room right now who's a Christian, you're a part of now the family line, the bloodline, if you will, of Jesus. Not the literal bloodline, but the blood that was shed on the cross to pay the price for your sin. And as we come into saving recognition of that, and we ask God to forgive us of our sins, and we grow in that, then we are a part of his family. He says, you're not the same person that you were before. You're a new creation. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're my child. You're a child of God. You are in this story now. Isn't that beautiful. So the reason why Matthew and Luke start with this story of a broken, messy background to Jesus is because they're trying to say something. That the family that Jesus was from anticipates the family he's come for. You follow that? The family that Jesus is from anticipates the family that he's come for. You and I who are equally as messed up and as broken as some of those people in the list right there, and yet who are not disqualified, and who are ones that God now turns to and says, I choose you, that you are going to be a part of this thing called the church, this thing filled with kind of messy people who know that they have a God who has saved them and redeemed them and have hope now. See, as Christians, we don't worship the mess. We don't go, oh, look at all my brokenness, look at all my sin. Paul says, in recognition of the grace of God, do I continue to just go on sinning? No. We don't worship the mess, but we realize that we are part of the mess. And that Jesus comes and redeems us out of that mess. And as he pulls us out of it, we then have a story to tell. Christmas should be the most powerful gospel evangelistic story that could ever be told to a broken and desperate world, but we've allowed the world to strip Jesus from it. Happy holidays. When actually Christmas should be the time where the church rises up and says, there's a better story to be told. There's a story about the mess of the world and the mess of humanity and the God who is not afraid of that mess. A God who steps into that mess, who does something about it, who invites us to experience his love even in the mess. I love how the scholar Raymond Brown puts it. He wrote this. He said, the God who wrote the beginnings with crooked lines also writes the sequence with crooked lines. And some of those lines are our own lives in witness. A God who did not hesitate to use the scheming as well as the noble the impure as well as the pure, men to whom the world hearkened and women upon whom the world frowned. This God continues to work through the same glorious mess of people. Isn't that beautiful? This God continues to work through the same glorious mess of people, the Vine Church in Hong Kong. That fills me with joy. That's the gospel that actually is Christmas. And on your way out in a moment, I want to encourage you to go down the main stairs of the building, particularly if you didn't have time to look at them on the way up. If you're in the upper house, uh, I might want to encourage you guys to come and do that, even though you might escape uh, through the lift or some other way at the end. Not escape, that was the wrong word. You go in the lift. <laughs> you're more than welcome to use the lift anytime. I will not think you're escaping. The lift is good. But you might want to come down the stairs and come down the main thing. Because what we've done is we've wanted to visually represent everything I've been talking about today and what this series is all about. 
through what we call uh, cabinets of curiosity or, or rooms of wonder. They're famous in the 16th century to help people to experience the wonder of the world. And uh, we, our creative team, have made uh, four of these that are down there on the stairs. You can look at them on the way out. And we've put specific things inside of them because they represent what I'm talking about. They represent the reality that on the outside, we're structured and we have a certain way and we project a certain image but on the inside is all the stuff. Some of it which we're happy for people to see, some of it we're not happy for people to see. But in that, we have a gateway to the need for the gospel of Jesus and the need for the hope that he brings us by his love and in his power. And so as we come to look at these little cabinets of curiosity, I wonder you might reflect a little bit on the curiousness of your mess in you. And it's an invitation for you to bring that mess to him. And what we're going to do every step of this series is give you an opportunity to bring a certain type or kind of mess to God. And I believe that as we get to the end of the series and as we get to Christmas Day, you will find yourself living out the Christmas story so much better than ever before. It is not a misdirection. Instead, what Matthew and Luke do is they like, I'm not going to do this, by the way, but if they took this and went like that, they basically rip it all off and they say, this is how it really is because in this, there is hope. For you in this room, online right now, everybody in the overflow, no matter how sinful you are, there is hope. No matter how broken you are, there is hope. No matter how forgotten you are, there is hope. No matter how mistreated you have been in your life, there is hope. That's the gospel message of Jesus. That's what Christmas is all about. So may we enjoy the mess this year. One of the greatest messes you'll ever encounter is the mess of Christmas Day. Do not be too quick to clean it up. Can I pray for you? Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful for the people in this room. I'm so grateful for every person who holds a different story. I'm grateful, Lord, that you have provided for us all a gateway, an entry point to you. That your birth in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago in a sequence of messy events is really our opportunity to experience your welcome in our lives. And so I wanna pray for a few kinds of people in this room as our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed. Some of you in this room, you don't know Jesus. And maybe when you came in here this morning, you wouldn't have said that you were a Christian. Maybe someone's invited you here or maybe you feel like you had a relationship with God in the past, but that's gone and you're wondering how to get it back. The message that I brought today is a message of hope for you. You don't need to get yourself cleaned up before you can meet Jesus. And some of you, that's a real message for you today. Some of you are, are thinking, well, once I get through that divorce or I stop doing that thing there or once I just become a little bit of a better person, then I can be a Christian and come to church. And the message today, the message of Christmas is, no matter how messed up you are right now, you are welcome here. You're a part of our community. 
But more importantly, Jesus loves you. He's for you and he can help you. And so maybe some of you in this room right now or online, you wanna give your life to Jesus for the very first time. You've never done that before, but this is a moment for you. So whilst our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed, I wanna give you an opportunity to respond today. Perhaps right now your heart is just beating a little bit faster because you know that God is with you in this, that he's inviting you to a relationship with him. And you may not have all the answers. Uh, You may not know all the things, but you do know in this moment that you want to meet a God who can meet you right where you are. So if you've never given your life to Jesus before, I wanna give you an opportunity to do that and I'm gonna pray for you in a moment. Whilst our eyes are closed, heads are bowed, you have an opportunity to start this new Advent series and season in the right place. And so if that's you, I wanna just encourage you just really quickly, just put your hand up so I can see you, so I can pray for you personally. Anybody here in the lower house? In the upper house as well, just put your hand up so I can see it. Great, see that hand, thank you. Anyone else wanna join my sister? Yeah, I see that as well, thank you. I can't really see the upper house, but uh, we have pastors up there who can see you if you, do, if you have raised your hand. All right, I wanna pray for those two people that I've seen and maybe some people in the upper house as well. Father, I thank you so much for these two, Lord, who, Lord, have brought themselves to a place today to meet you. And we're all gonna pray as one church together now, but those two in, in the upper house, if it's you as well, I want you just to pray after me. We're all gonna do it out loud, so you guys are a part of it, but it's particularly for you guys. So we're all gonna pray this together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I wanna thank you for coming to earth for being born 2,000 years ago so I could know you. Thank you for being born into the mess, into my mess. Thank you. I ask that you would come now and meet me, forgive me, and help me. I ask for your Holy Spirit to be in me and with me and helping me. And I thank you that my new life starts today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you prayed that prayer here in the room and in the upper house, uh, do come and talk to me afterwards or one of our pastors. We'd love to pray with you. Everybody else, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes again. Sorry, because we're not done yet. And so this is now for everybody else here who's already a Christian. And I know some of you are from really broken homes. I know that because I'm your pastor and our pastoral team spends time with you guys. And some of you are from really difficult, challenging family backgrounds. Some of you have been deeply hurt by those in your family. And some of you... um, You've been really impacted and affected over the years by the brokenness in your family. And I pray today as we've taken a bit of a look at the brokenness of Jesus' family, that you would find hope renewed in you today. That you would know that there is a God who knows what it is that you're going through. 
who knows how hard that it has been for you and a God who wants to come and walk with you. He's not a God who always necessarily suddenly makes everything better, doesn't always suddenly change our circumstances or situations, but he does guarantee his presence with you in whatever it is that you are facing right now and will need to face. And so if you're from a broken home or a challenging family background, know that the love of God and the presence of God is with you. And Lord, I wanna pray for my, my family here, whether that's their reality. Father, I pray that they would feel hope renewed in them, that they are now swept up in a, in a family that you're a part of, that you started, that as we carry the name of Christ, we do so as part of your family, your sons and daughters, your children. And Father, I wanna pray lastly for anyone here who's hurt people. You know, in the list of Jesus's genealogy are those that have been mistreated. And we know, Lord, that sometimes we have done that ourselves. Maybe some of our family issues are at our doorstep. We, we were the perpetrators of some of the broken relationships in our families and some of the things that, that we're not proud of. Maybe we're the reason why there's been some brokenness amongst the people we love the most. And I wanna pray for you if that's you in this room, that you would know the grace and the forgiveness of a God who forgives you so that you might be able to have the strength to move forward and invite and ask for forgiveness for those that you have hurt. The Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And I think the Gospels would further add as we invite and ask for forgiveness for those that we've hurt. And so I wanna pray for anyone here who recognizes that they've played that kind of role in their family. That Lord, I, I, I just ask that you would give them the strength, Lord. The humility, Lord. To seek reconciliation where it's possible, Lord may not be possible in every circumstance, but where it's possible, Lord, give them the courage to do that. And Father, as we stand with this thought today, we're thankful that you minister to us in multiple different ways. And it's all for your glory and for your grace. In Jesus' name. Could we stand together and uh, we're gonna finish our time just allowing the Spirit of God to continue to minister to us. Uh, we're gonna sing some worship together. Uh, and I want to encourage you that you may want to seek prayer uh, after the service. In a moment, Justin will close the service. And when he does so, we're going to invite you to come forward for prayer. And, you know, some of the things that I've been sharing about today touch a nerve for you, touch your heart. Uh, we've got a team that would love to pray for you. And so we'll lead you in that in just a moment. But let's worship for now.